Let's come to God's word. Let's pray. Father God, it's a privilege to uh, come to your word, knowing that uh, you speak to us clearly and powerfully through it. Father God, we ask that your spirit will be working in each of us this morning. Lord, I pray that you'd convict us of your truths, uh, show us Christ, and help us to live in light of him. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, as we come to Christmas, uh, I wonder what famous passages come up to mind for you as you think about Christmas and the birth of Jesus. Maybe it's uh, the genealogy, Matthew 1, the wise men, Matthew 2. Maybe it's the birth narratives, Matthew 1 and Luke chapter 2. Maybe it's John 3.16, probably the most famous verse in the Bible. Isaiah 7, the sign of Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah chapter 9, to us the child is, got, is born, a son is given. Maybe it's Galatians 4 that we looked at before. God sent forth his son. All of these are important and famous passages about the coming of Christ. What about the most important and famous passages of the Bible generally as a whole? What comes to mind for you? Well, we'd probably include some of those we just talked about. We'd probably include Genesis 1 to 3, Psalm 23, Isaiah 53, Romans 8, nothing can separate from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Revelation 21 and 22, come, Jesus, come, the new creation. wonder what famous, important passages come into mind for you. Well, this morning, as we continue our Advent series leading up to Christmas, as we go through key passages that point to the coming of Jesus, it might not make your list yet, but today's passage that we just read out, 2 Samuel 7, is one of the most important chapters in the Bible, and it ought to make your list of famous passages our former principal of Moore College in Sydney, John Woodhouse, he says there are few chapters more important and more, insight, more exciting than 2 Samuel 7. He goes even further when he preaches this to say that these are one of the most important words spoken in world history. Pastor Elster Begg in USA says this passage unlocks the entire story of the Bible. Scholar Don Carson, in his summary of the Bible, in his book, The God Who Was There, he selects 2 Samuel 7 as one of his 14 key passages to focus on. Some of you know that I help out in a conference uh, every January called Ignite Training Conference. I used to leave Strand 2. Uh, it's a week-long workshop, and it looks at this strand, the Old Testament, and how it all comes together and points to Jesus. And 2 Samuel 7 is one of the key passages we focus on in the week, in understanding the Bible as a whole and how Christ is the center of it all. So we're going to look at 2 Samuel 7 today. We're going to see how it shows us the coming of Jesus as the coming of God's promised King. And as we learn from God's word today, my goals, our goals today are to deepen our appreciation for the coming of Jesus 
and to deepen our appreciation of God's word as a whole as it points to God's son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, as we kick off, just to give you a sense of where uh, 2 Samuel sits, it's about 1,000 years before the time of Jesus. Uh, Israel's in the promised land. They've asked for a king. They got this dud king in Saul. Uh, David's risen up to be God's chosen king. David and Saul, they wore it out. And then David, uh, he wars it out with the neighboring nations. And when we reach this chapter today, chapter 7, all of these wars are over. There's peace. There's no threats around them. They've captured Jerusalem as their capital. They brought the Ark of the Covenant there. And David, he's built his palace in chapter 5. And we see this in chapter 7, verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. See, David's referred to here as king. He's God's man, God's chosen one, the enthroned and anointed one. And David, he looks at his palace, his house, It's this mansion made of the best timber and the most expensive stone. And then he looks from his house to the ark, the dwelling place of God, in this fabric tent made of goatskin. And David thinks, this isn't right. This doesn't speak well of God. So he points this out to Nathan the prophet, and it's implied in the comment here in verse 1, David, he wants to right this wrong. He wants to build a temple, a house for the ark, a house for God. And Nathan, he speaks his mind, his personal opinion, not thus says the Lord here. He said it sounds like a good idea. Nothing wrong from his point of view. Verse 3, And Nathan said to the king, Go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. And before we keep going, uh, the word house uh, is going to be a key word as we move forward in this chapter. Uh, It's used here uh, in this passage to mean three different things. First is a a house is in a palace or a home. Second, a house or a temple. Or the third is a house in the sense of a dynasty, the sense of a family and descendants in that sort of house. Well, as we keep going, I wonder if you remember a time when you had really good intentions, but you got things completely wrong. Well, Angela, my wife, uh, when we started going out, I was surprising her. I was baking brownies and chocolate souffles for her. Uh, If you don't know, Angela loves chocolate, and I know that's a very sweet gesture for me. Uh, But now, looking back knowing that chocolate causes her migraines, I realized that my intentions were good, but it probably wasn't the best thing to do, giving her chocolate, even though she loves it, but knowing that it gives her migraines. Likewise, when we look in this passage, David, he had good intentions. But as we come to God's response in verse 4 onwards, spoken through the prophet Nathan, as we see at the end, verse 17, we're going to see that while David had really good intentions, there was something wrong with his request. 
And there's three sections in God's reply. And the first is that God rejects David's request, verse 4 to 7. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? That's a rhetorical question with an obvious answer of no, while reminding David that even though he's king, he's this really important guy, his role is really my servant, God's servant. And God gives two reasons why. First is in verse 6. I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. You see, God's never dwelt or lived in a permanent house. And the second and more important reason is in verse 7. All the, in all places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel who commanded, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? You see, while the idea of a house, a temple for God, was well and good in intention, God's never asked for it. He's never commanded it. And he's never instructed for it to be done to this point. In fact, David, he's probably taking his cue from other nations, other ancient Near East superpowers at the time. You see, these other nations around them, they would conquer a land, and they'll see this conquering, this victory as a previous favor from their little G God, their idol. And once in the land, uh, these nations, they would build a temple to pay homage to their little G God. And by building this temple, the people, they would expect to receive future favor from God as a result of this building of temple. And the Egyptians, the Syrians, others, superpowers around this time had this practice. But God, Yahweh, he isn't like these little G local gods and idols of their neighbors. And in the second section here, God, he reminds them of his previous mighty works. Uh, but instead of waiting for a temple to be built, God, he changes this, he inverts this, and shows how different our God is. God, he initiates, he promises his future blessings, and there's no strings attached with God's promises. You might call it even grace. And then the temple building comes later on. You see here, God reminds David and us today of his divine initiative, both in the past and in the future. Verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went have and have cut off all your enemies from before you. You see, these are all of God's past blessings. And note the emphasis on I. I did this. I did that. I was with you. You see, David's king, David is king, but he's just God's servant. It's not that David is powerful or impressive. It's 
God. He's the one that was at work. He's the one who initiates and does all of this stuff, not David. And God, he worked abundantly in David's life. And now that God set all of this straight, he uses all this as a basis to look to the future, the future that God wants and will bring about. Verse 9. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they will dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time I appointed the judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. You see, the future is in God's hand. God initiates and God will do all these things and not David. Look at all these promises here. God's going to make David's name great. For those of you who know your Bibles, what does that remind you of? It's Genesis 12. God promises to Abraham, I'll make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Next thing here, God's going to appoint a place for his people. This one's from Exodus 15, the song of Moses after they pass the river. You'll bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. And God, he is going to give them rest and peace. This one's a bit harder. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 12. God, uh, Moses is giving God's law. And he promises a time in Deuteronomy 12 of rest and peace and safety in their own land, the promised land. You see, God reminds David and us of his divine initiative, both in the past and also moving into the future. God will do his will. God's working his promises out. And while David's idea of building this house, this temple, was all well and good, the motivation may have been great. The intention may have been good. But we need to get with God's agenda as God initiates and works out his promises. And God, he doesn't stop there. He's promised a great name, a land, and peace. And as we keep going, God continues to give David promises. And this time, it's about how all this stuff is going to happen. You see, David wanted to build God's house, a temple. But now God, he promises to build David a house, a dynasty, a family ruling on God's throne. Have a look at verse 11. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. If you remember before David, Saul, King Saul, his kingship, it ended before any royal succession. There was no dynasty, no house, no family. But for David, God's king, God promises a succession. 
his own biological son will rule descendant after descendant after descendant. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name and I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God says, it's not you, David, it's your son, David's son, who will build a house. It's, and it's not for God to dwell, which is what all the other nations did, their idols, they dwelled in their temples. But this house that David's son will build is for God's name, where people will come and call out for God and to worship his name, which is what Solomon does a few chapters down the track. And God, he also repeats and expands verse 12. He's going to establish David's kingdom. And now this kingdom is forever. And that's another key word in this chapter. David's dynasty, descendant after descendant after descendant, it will never end. You see, death will not destroy David's house which is the first aspect of God's promise to David here. And the second aspect of God's promise, or God's covenant with David, is that sin cannot destroy David's house. Look at verse 14. I'll be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity or sin, I'll discipline him with the rod of men, the stripes of the son of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. If you know a bit about the books of Samuel, uh, they're full of failed fathers. Eli, the high priest, he raised rebellious kids. Saul, he tried to kill his own son, Jonathan. Even David himself, he was a failed dad to his sons in many different ways. The people of Israel were considered sons of God, but God, he takes it even further here. To the king, to David's descendants, God will be a true father to the king, and he will be God's son. God will love and discipline his son, but his steadfast love, his covenant love, will keep going, will endure forever. You see, God's love and commitment to David's house means sin cannot destroy God's house and David's house. And finally, verse 16, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. It's another repeat. Uh, David's house David's kingdom or God's kingdom through his servant David, time will not exhaust David's kingdom. His term will never end. It will keep going and going and going and going and going. I don't know about you, but I think these are big words, huge promises that God is making to David here that David's house, David's rule, his reign, his kingdom, it's going to last forever. Death will not destroy it, sin will not destroy it, and time will not exhaust it. It's easy to take a passage like this for granted, to not be excited or intrigued by this promise. 
But if we pose this question for a moment, if David's house, if this house is going to last forever, there's only two ways this can happen. The first is a perpetual rule, like any royal family today, descendant after descendant, going and going and going. Or there's a second way, one son, a promised son, a son who will live and rule forever. And in one sense, the Bible is a book of genealogies tracking the family tree, descendant after descendant after descendant. If you look back Genesis 3, last week's passage, Sam highlighted Genesis 3 verse 15, and it talks about an offspring who will defeat sin and that sneaky serpent. And if you look at the rest of Genesis, it tracks this offspring, Seth, Noah, Abraham. In Genesis 12, God promises Abraham and his offspring, whose name will be great and be a blessing to all. And then this family tree keeps going. It's Isaac, Jacob, on and on, going and going, tracking that family tree. Now we get to David and God's promises again. It's in line with those previous promises, but expands it even more. Offspring, rule, a kingdom forever. And now from today's passage, we look forward. Solomon, at the time of Solomon, everyone thought he was this promised one. He built the temple. He increased Israel's borders. He turned Israel into a world superpower itself. And the people thought, these promises to David, 2 Samuel 7, it's come. The kingdom of God is here. But if you know anything about Solomon, that obviously wasn't the case. Solomon sinned, yet God disciplined him. Solomon died, but God's commitment, his covenant love to David's house continued. Even when the kings after Solomon were a ratbag bunch, you read one and two kings, it's like good king, bad king, bad king, good king, it keeps going. They were normal, sinful, or terribly sinful. Rehoboam, Abijah, on and on and on. You can skim through it. But God's commitment to David's house continued. Even through the exile, God preserved his kings, two kings, 25, right at the end. It's got this comment right at the end. Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he's alive. God's promises are still alive. Even during the exile, the prophets, God kept speaking through them, reminding the people of his promises, restoring the kingdom, God's king coming into Jerusalem. And there's this expectation, looking for God's king. Who is he? Where is he coming? When's he coming? They're waiting for God to work this promise out. And then we turn to the pages of the New Testament. Matthew 1, 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Luke 1, 31 to 33. The angel speaking to Mary. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. 
and you shall call his name Jesus. He'll be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And again, Matthew 21, verse 9, Jesus, he's riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, and the people shouted, Hosanna, the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. You see, Jesus is God's king. And in Jesus, we see that David's house isn't continually descendant after descendant, son after son. It comes finally to that one promised son, Jesus Christ, who fits God's promises perfectly. He really is God's son. He doesn't sin, yet he's disciplined for the sins of the world. And God's steadfast love never leaves Jesus. And God's kingdom lasts forever in Jesus, who died, who rose again, and lives forever, seated right now at God's throne. The same Lord Jesus Christ who announces himself at the end of Scripture, Revelation 22, verse 16, he says, I am the root and the descendant of David the bright morning star. You see, Jesus is indeed God's promised king. I've been getting into jigsaw puzzles lately, and while it's less effort to just get the finished puzzle done without doing much work, I think there's a joy and appreciation in the hours and the days and the weeks when you're putting the puzzle together for yourself. I know most of you know that Jesus is God's promised king, but to grapple with this for yourself, to see God's word show this, and to mind a key passage in 2 Samuel 7, seeing and putting all of these pieces together yourself, I think it gives us a greater and a deeper sense of understanding, of joy, of appreciation, of seeing Jesus truly as God's promised king. And if you're here this morning and you're a bit skeptical about God and the Bible and all that, and you're unsure about why Jesus is worth rejoicing in, I pray that unpacking this verse, this chapter 2 Samuel 7 today, really helps you to consider God and to consider his promises that center on Jesus. Well, as we finish off, uh, we're getting really close to Christmas dinners and all of that sort of stuff. Uh, and one thing you'll find when you go to Christmas meals are Christmas crackers, the ones that you pull, you get some plastic toy, some lame dad joke, uh, and then a party hat to put on. Uh, I'm personally not a big fan of Christmas festivities. I'm definitely the Grinch at home that stole Christmas. Uh, just ask Angela about that. <laughs> But if we pull our Christmas crackers, we hear the Big Bang, and we read the funny joke, we put the party hat on. Well, I don't know if you've noticed, but the party hat, it's actually a crown. It's a crown that we put on ourselves and each other. But if you really think about it, 
the crown during Christmas, it's not about us. It's supposed to point us to Jesus. The crown is for him. But we often put the crown on ourselves as king of our lives, don't we? So if Jesus is really God's promised king, how can we crown Jesus king today, this Christmas, whatever's happening in your life right now? Well, three quick thoughts as we finish off today. First, submit to Jesus the king. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ, he's on the throne. He rules from heaven, and one day every enemy will be under his feet, and Jesus will rule all of heaven and earth. And as it says here, his everlasting kingdom will be established. So this morning, maybe it's submitting to Jesus, bowing the knee to Jesus, whether it's the first time or the hundredth time. Submit your lives to him. Let him rule, which means saying no to other things that rule your life. And also to live his way, which means conforming your life under the lordship of Jesus. It's so easy to forget to submit to Jesus, especially in the everyday grind of life when things are busy, when times are hard, when things don't go as planned. Submit to Jesus the King. Second, serve Jesus the King. If Jesus is indeed your King, He's your ultimate boss. He's the one that we labor for. It's His kingdom work that deserves our all our time, our energy, our possessions, our all. So let me ask you how are you serving King Jesus today? How are you announcing the good news of Jesus and his kingdom? How are you building his kingdom, growing his church locally and globally? Because if you're not doing this, you're probably not serving King Jesus. You're probably serving someone or something else. Serve Jesus the King. And third and finally, sit under the kingship of Jesus. I think it's so easy to get caught up in submitting to Jesus, serving Jesus, or even just caught up in the busyness and the craziness of life that we forget to simply sit under the kingship of Jesus and to find peace, joy, hope, assurance, confidence, and all that comes with sitting under Jesus, knowing that Jesus is king, that Jesus, our King, is ruling and reigning on high, that he has the universe and our lives in his trustworthy hands. Life feels out of control. Well, take heart. Jesus is King. Are you anxious about COVID, mandates, all of those things happening around this time? Take heart. Jesus is King. Maybe there's health, financial difficulties, whatever it is, take heart, Jesus is King. Sometimes I think we need to just stop and remember that Jesus is King and to let that 
great truth shape our hearts, our minds, our feelings, our emotions, and then our actions. Simply to sit under the kingship of Jesus. Well, Jesus is indeed God's promised king. He's promised the promised one in 2 Samuel 7. He's the promised one all through God's word. And he calls us to submit to him, to serve him, and to sit under his good kingship. Let's pray to that end. Father God, we confess that we are forgetful people. But your word is abundantly clear that Jesus is your promised king, the son of David, the one you promised who would establish your eternal kingdom. Lord God, help each of us to crown Jesus as king of our lives, to submit to his rule, to serve his purposes, and to sit under his gracious and loving kingship. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.